one semester of law school, one semester of criminal justice, two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the wrongful conviction of Lamonte McIntyre. This story has corruption at every turn. And I'll be talking about the brutal murder of Cindy Bierman, a 17-year-old honor student who was murdered during a robbery gone wrong. Or was she? So this case um, is local. Okay. My dad told me about it, and uh, I didn't know anything about it. And so it was actually, because of when it happened, it was a little bit difficult to find stuff on it. So like I just told you before we started recording, I had to like (laughs) online microfiche the shit out of this. (laughs) Like read back um, editions of the Salina Journal and stuff like that. So, did you feel like you were in a movie montage? I I've did. only seen people do that in movie I montages. I <laughs> No, that is really cool. I'm glad. Okay. So it's 1989 in Piper, Kansas. Do you know Piper? Really small town, right? Um, so it's really, it's actually a part of Kansas City, Kansas. It's considered like a neighborhood of Kansas City, Kansas. But they have their own school district. Um, it was once like an unincorporated, it was its own town and then I mean, years and years ago, it was incorporated into Kansas City, Kansas. So to correct what I just said, I know nothing about Piper, That's correct. (laughs) Yes. Um, It is the area basically where the Legends is. It's just north of the Legends. So, yeah. I I mean, you're, I'm sure. And for people who aren't from around here, the Legends is an outlet It's an outlet mall in Kansas City, Kansas. Okay. So, 1989, Piper, Kansas. Um, Oh, Fame, notable person from Piper is Eric Stone Street. He graduated oh, from Piper cool. High. Yeah. So, okay. yes. Um, he graduated there, I think, in 87. So, right, yeah, around, right around the, time. the same yeah. time. Okay. February 19th, 1989, 3.11 a.m., Wyandotte County Sheriff's Dispatch. Dispatch. I need to stop putting that fucking word in my episodes because I can't say it right. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> I can never help you out in the editing because here's here's what you and I have a tendency to do, which is a totally normal human yes. thing. You know, you say something, yeah. and let's say you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. syllable yes. So then when you correct it, you say it like, dispatch, <laughs> yes. and then like, You can't just leave that in no. and you sound like a fucking idiot. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So, 311 AM, Wyandotte County, 911 Center. <laughs> Is there another word for that? No. <laughs> no. Not on this podcast. He receives a call from 21-year-old Sherry Bierman. Sherry says she's just returned home after a night out, and she believes her house has been broken into, and that someone may still be in the house. Oh, shit. Um, the dispatcher tells her to leave the house immediately. Oddly enough, can say dispatcher just fine. I don't know what that's about. I don't know either, man. <laughs> <laughs> dispatcher... Tells her to leave the house immediately, go next door, call back from the next door neighbor's phone. Right. What does Sherry do? Not fucking listen. No. Yeah. 30 seconds later, Sherry calls back the 911 phone center (laughs) (laughs) and says that she's gone upstairs in the house and she has... She has found her sister laying on the floor and there's blood everywhere. Oh, my God. 
Um, officers arrive at the scene at 3.20. As officers approach the house, Sherry, like, rips open the front door and grabs an officer and pulls him into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is hysterical. She told the officers that someone had killed her sister and that she believed the suspects may still be in the house. So police search the house. They find the body of, of Sherry's sister, Sydney, upstairs in her bedroom. No one else is in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, portions of the house had been ransacked and s- several items are missing. Bierman, who was recently divorced, lived with her two sons, ages one and three, in the finished basement of her parents' home. Her parents and her sister, Sydney. I'm sorry, Cindy. Okay, let me just preface this by saying this girl's name is spelled S-Y-N-D-I. So my brain... That's this asking happened, for trouble. This, yep. when, it, when I was reading through this, like practicing it, I was like, I'm going to fucking say Cindy every time I see that. Her name is Cindy. And if I call her Sydney, I apologize. You know what I do sometimes? Just change the yeah, spelling. Yeah. I thought about doing that. Who's who's going to know? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so her parents and her sister, Cindy, live upstairs. Okay. Cindy was described as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 17-year-old bundle of energy with a smile that could light up a room. As a young child, Cindy was always busy with something. Dance lessons, competitive swimming, diving, softball, reading, piano lessons, and playing the trumpet and flute. Good grief. Yes. When she was in junior high school, Cindy played in the band, played basketball and volleyball, and was a cheerleader. In high school, she was a yearbook photographer, played softball and volleyball, and was on the drill team. Cindy was an honor roll student who had been admitted at KU and was looking forward to college. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she never made it there. Yeah. So, Sherry, Cindy's sister, tells the police um, that she left the home at 11 o'clock and returned at 3 a.m. and discovered the burglary. The burglary. Fuck, I'm having problems today. I, I want it to be a burglary. <laughs> <laughs> she discovered the burglar named Gary. <laughs> that makes it so easy for the police because they're all named Gary. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so she discovers the burglary and her sister's body. Sherry tells the police that she left the home at 11 p.m. and returned at 3 a.m. and discovered the burglary and her sister. She stated that Sydney and two of... Fuck, that Cindy and two of Mm -hmm. Cindy's friends, Mm -hmm. Renee and Lisa, were at the residence when she left. She said no one else was at the house that night. When police questioned Renee and Lisa, Cindy's two friends, Mm -hmm. about the events of the evening... They told a different story about who had been at the house that night. They said that someone named AJ had been at the house with Sherry and that Cindy had mentioned that she was afraid of AJ and Sherry. AJ and Sherry, AJ and Sherry, her sister. Yes. Interesting. Yes. So after hearing this, the police brought Sherry down to the station where she repeated her statement that she left at 11, returned at three and no one was with her at the house. Um, when confronted with the fact that other people knew that someone had been at the home with her that evening, she eventually admitted that Joseph Hernandez and Archie A.J. Owens were at the house with her and that they all left at 11 p.m. She said Hernandez and Owens would not do anything like stealing property or kill her sister. She said that out of the blue, uh-huh. unprompted. Yep. Normal. Sure thing. Mm-hmm. Normal right? stuff. So great. 
Just a couple of normal guys, right? Nothing to worry about here. Hey, Brandy, I just want to say totally casually, I'm not going to murder you. Yes, right. <laughs> now, why are you sweating like that? <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> hmm. Turns out, the stolen property was later found at Owen's apartment. No. Yeah. Mm. Shocking. Mm-hmm. So police go back to Sherry and they're like, well, you were clearly fucking lying about this. Mm -hmm. And now Hernandez and Owens are nowhere to be found. So they arrest Sherry and charge her with theft over $500 Mm -hmm. and aiding a felon, helping a felon escape. Um, Because they believe that she told this kind of false version of the story to allow them to give them time, time to run. Yes. At that time, though, Hernandez and Owens were also charged with theft over $500 and first-degree murder. But the police had no idea where they were. So there were just warrants out for their arrest. Yes, they had. Yeah, they were okay. charged in absentia, and they um, issued warrants. There was, like, a, you know, a, I don't know, a national release. Like, we're looking for these people. Right. Whatever. Turns out, on February 21st, so two days after the murder, two, three days after the murder, mm-hmm. two days, they had actually been stopped by a trooper in Oklahoma as they were hitchhiking after their car broke down. They were traveling with two girls, one of which was a 15-year-old um, runaway from Johnson County. Oh, my. The trooper actually took her into custody because when he ran her name, it came back that she was... Um, a runaway, and so he took her into custody. And the other people's names all um, came back clear. Mm-hmm. And so he actually, the trooper actually gave them a ride to the county line because hitchhiking oh was illegal. Gosh. And then let him go. It's unclear to me what happens next. They either gave the trooper fake names or their name, like their, their identities had not yet been released that they were wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was the 80s, so it yeah, wasn't like exactly. stuff was moving super so, fast. Later that same day, the next day, this same trooper sees this wanted thing. Oh, and he's like, shit. fuck, those are the guys that I gave the ride today. And so they've narrowed down where they are. They're, so they right. believe they're still somewhere in Oklahoma. Um, the next day, uh, Hernandez actually calls the police. He, he calls 911. He's like, hey, I'm tired of running. I'm in Tulsa. I'm at this hotel. Come get me. I'll surrender. And so... And was this AJ? No, this no, is the other Joseph guy. Hernandez. Okay, gotcha, yes. gotcha. So he turns himself into authorities. He's arrested mm-hmm. without incident. It's unclear to me when the other guy, Archie Owens, AJ, mm-hmm. I, when he's arrested, but eventually he is. Right. Okay. Um, so after Hernandez surrenders, they, you know, bring him back to Kansas and he talks to police and he walks them through everything that happened the night that Cindy was killed, which... Um, led to them amending the charges they had filed against Sherry. Oh, no. On February 23rd, 1989, she was also charged with first-degree murder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in a plea agreement, Hernandez pled guilty and agreed to testify against Sherry and AJ. So, on June 26, 1989, Sherry Bierman and Archie A.J. Owens went on trial for the brutal murder of Sherry's 17-year-old sister, Cindy. Okay, so this is what Hernandez testified when he took the stand. He said that he had known Sherry for about a year. He had seen her one to three times a month. They were not dating, and he saw her... Okay, so this information comes directly from the court transcripts. Okay. He saw her for sexual relations. (laughs) (laughs) How old is he? He's 
22, 24, <laughs> something like that. Can't you picture some nervous little dweeb like, uh, it was sexual relations. Sexual relations. So, they weren't dating. They were buck fuddies. They met up every, every two, one to three times a month and they had sex. Uh, make love. <laughs> yes. Um, on February 18th, 1989, he testified that he was living with Owens and Owens' girlfriend. Okay. Her ma- name may be Tammy uh-huh. Lewis. It also may be Tamby Lewis. It is spelled T-A-M-B-I. But is that a name? Is that a silent B? Are these names just intentionally spelled weird to fuck me up? <laughs> I think they had this podcast in mind. <laughs> so... Let's call her Tammy, because Tammy. Tammy, that's not a real name, is it? I don't think so. Okay, so we're going to call her Tammy, for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Her name's Tammy. So Tammy Lewis, um, he's, she and, so Tammy Lewis is Owen's girlfriend, and Owen's, Hernandez, and Tammy are all living together. Mm -hmm. Tammy had incidentally just been released from a mental hospital after serving three years for the murder of a 91-year-old woman. Oh, my. So she, there. I tried to find some information on this, but she was a juvenile when it happened, so right. it's everything's sealed. So right. okay, I don't know the circumstances, but somehow she was found guilty of murdering this ninety-one, ninety-two. It was cited two different ways in mm-hmm. different articles. So elderly woman, and she was sent to a youth. It was the Beloit Youth Center, which, from my reading, is understood to be. I understood it to be a some kind of mental institution. Right. Okay. But she only served three years. But if she wow. would have been, if she was, if she was charged as a juvenile and then only had to serve until she became an adult, that would, mm-hmm. that would potentially make sense, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like she was shoplifting at Claire's. Right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Which, uh, did you hear the news that Claire's filed for bankruptcy? Don't rub it in. <laughs> We bought so much stuff there back in the day. Oh my gosh. So, so much, much crap. Stuff. And I remember I was always pissed when the bracelets would break immediately, like in the mall food. Yes! Court. I was always surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't believe my $7 investment That's never right. paid off. Okay. So the three of them are living in an apartment together. So on the day of the murder, um, Hernandez called Bierman between 5 and 5.30, and they agreed to see each other. So Owens gave Hernandez a ride over to Bierman's house in Lewis's car, in Tammy's car. Okay. Um, they stopped on the way and called Bierman to make sure it was okay if Owens came along, and she's like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. Right. So they arrive at the Bierman home at approximately 6.30, and after 20 to 25 minutes... The three of them, Owens, Hernandez, and Bierman, all got in the car with um, Bierman's two children and dropped them off at the babysitter. Okay. After they drop the kids off, they drive around for a while, and then the three return to Sherry's house. They parked in the garage and then entered the basement apartment. Um, Cindy's car and two other cars were at the house. So Bierman used her, the phone in the basement as an intercom and called upstairs to her sister Cindy to see who was there. But um, Hernandez testified that Bierman did not want Cindy to know that she had two guys in the house with her. Okay. And so she was kind of weird about it. Okay. Um, 
So after she calls and finds out who's in the house, Hernandez testifies that then they have three-way bondage sex in the basement. Whoa. Yes. Um, Afterward, Hernandez and Owen suggested that they steal things from Beerman's parents' house, and Beerman said, that's fine, do whatever you want. What? Yes. Um, Hernandez admitted that he and Owens had talked earlier about stealing from the house. So it was like when they were driving over, they're like, oh, wouldn't it be great? Because it was a pretty nice house, I guess. They had nice stuff. I mean, it was 1989. They had a computer. I mean, they... The bondage threesome wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. They wanted to do the bondage threesome (laughs) and then steal stuff from the house. I've never felt so lame in my entire life. So shortly before midnight, Owens, Hernandez, and Beerman left the Beerman home. So they drove Lewis's car. So they drove the the girlfriend's car back to the apartment. Mm -hmm. And then they leave in Sherry's car and go pick up the kids from the babysitter. I'm guessing that the babysitter was like, I'll watch them till midnight. And that's it. So they go pick the kids up from the babysitter. They bring them back to the apartment Mm -hmm. where um, Owens and Hernandez live. Drop them off there while... Tammy, mm-hmm. the recently released convicted murderer, uh-huh. and the 15-year-old runaway are at the this um, apartment. So, the so kids, these are the babysitters. Those are the, babys- those are the new babysitters. Good God. Yes. Yes. Um, and then they get back in the car, Owens, Hernandez, and Beerman, and go back to the Beerman house. Oh, my gosh. On the way... Hernandez testifies that Beerman directed them to a construction site to pick up two by fours in case they had to knock someone out. Because their their plan is now to go back to the house and steal stuff. With the anticipation that it'll probably go badly. Yes. Beerman said that the that it would only be her sister at home, that her parents were out and they would still be out. Um, she figured that Cindy's friends had left. And so if they were just quiet... They wouldn't steal everything you want. Yeah, you could just take what you want and leave. Upon arriving, Hernandez tried to go downstairs while Owens Owens and Beerman went upstairs. The basement door was locked, so Hernandez just followed Owens and Beerman upstairs. Well, and I'm guessing she didn't want them stealing her stuff. I'm guessing. Right, I'm guessing. Which is like classic dumb thing. Yeah. Oh no, mom and dad, someone robbed our house. Yeah. They didn't they take, take any of my stuff. The basement. Yeah. Um, Hernandez and Owens each had a two by four. By uh, Hernandez's testimony, Beerman did not have one at this time. Okay. Doesn't, okay. Yes. I mean, I know I'm picking on a weird thing here, but doesn't that sound like the fucking dumbest thing? I mean, trying to quietly sneak through a house while you're carrying a two by four? Yes. Come yes. on. Yeah. So, okay, this is this next piece of testimony is weird to me, and it presents some questions, I feel like, later. Okay. Okay. So... Um, Hernandez testifies that Beerman stomped on the stairs on their way upstairs in an effort to make noise. Mm-hmm. He said that they were outside Cindy's bedroom. The bedroom door was open and Cindy began to wake up and asked who was there. Hernandez hit Cindy two or three times with the two by four. And then Owens hit her three or four more times with his <sighs> two by four. Owens two by four had nails in it. Oh, God. Cindy rolled off the bed and began screaming. 
Hernandez pushed a pillow over her face and Owens hit her on the head. And then Hernandez was like, according to him, was like, fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm going to go get steal some stuff. So he left the room, according to his testimony. What a good guy. He just, yes, he, he was, was like, like, you know what? I was in it for beating yeah. this woman up, but now it's too much. Yes. Yeah. Um, Hernandez testified that he heard Owens tell Beerman to get her. And then he heard Be- Beerman yell, you fucking bitch. Then he heard a thump. Mm-hmm. Owens told Beerman to get some knives. Beerman left and then came back with two knives from downstairs. Hernandez denied cutting or stabbing Cindy or being present while anyone cut or stabbed her. Four kitchen type butcher knives were introduced as exhibits by the state and blood was on the knife found on the floor in Cindy's bedroom and on the knife that was found under the dining room table. The blood could have been Cindy's or Beerman's, but the analysis excluded Owen's blood as well as that of Hernandez. So there was blood on the knife, but it was either Cindy or Sherry's. It wasn't either Owen's or Hernandez. Gotcha. Hernandez then testified that he um, had kicked open the locked basement door and unplugged the computer and printer while Beerman was still upstairs. Hernandez, Owens, and Beerman took a computer, printer, VCR, camera, two watches, tapes, a mirror, and $60. Hernandez identified the stolen property recovered from Owen's apartment. He said all three helped load it in the car and then they took it and the two by fours with them. Beerman, Owens and Hernandez moved the stolen property and the two by fours into Owen's apartment. Um, Lewis. So Tammy, Mm -hmm. um, Riley, Tina, the 15 year old runaway. And then Beerman's children were there at the apartment when they got back. Um, Hernandez went to a downstairs apartment where it was like, you know, they were friendly with the downstairs neighbor. This woman, Tina Buck was down there and she, um, so he went down to that apartment and he asked Tina Buck and then some other girl who was there how to get blood off of his shoes. Are you kidding me? Beerman was down there with him, told him to shut up and come back upstairs. Hernandez told her to go home and call the police, um, and say that, the house had been robbed that she'd just come home and found a robbery. Mm-hmm. Beerman left with her children. Um, and he stated on, in his testimony that he never threatened Beerman. And the last thing Beerman said when she left was, I'll talk to you later. Mm-hmm. Um, so did they walk into the apartment with bloody two by fours mm-hmm. and the kids were in there. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that maybe the kids were asleep because it was really late by now. So hope. I'm hoping. But the 15 year old runaway and Tammy were yeah. there. Yes. Yep. Okay. And when they, when Owens and Hernandez go on the run, Tammy and the 15 year old runaway go with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're on board for whatever <laughs> they're doing, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Tina Riley, the teenage runaway, testified that Hernandez told her that he, Owens, and Beerman had beaten Cindy and that he had slit her throat because Cindy was yelling. Mm. So Hernandez testifies that he was not involved with the stabbing or the or the throat slitting. Right. Um, but Tina Riley says, well, that's not what he said. He told me that he slit her throat. Mm. Tammy Lewis pled guilty to aiding a felon after the fact And then testified that she was at Owens' apartment the night of February 18th and the morning of February 19th. She said that Owens, Hernandez, and Bierman dropped off Bierman's children. They said they were going to burglarize Bierman's parents. 
Um, and she testified that Bierman did not object. She was there when they were talking about this mm-hmm. plan and she was on board. When they came back, Bierman helped carry the stolen property into the apartment. Lewis said Owens told her that all three had beaten Cindy up. And um, Owens said in front of Bierman, well, Sherry don't care about her little sister anyway. And Bierman replied, I hate that little bitch. Sounds like it. Yeah, sure does. Um, So Tina Buck, the woman who was in the apartment downstairs from them, she testified that Hernandez came to the apartment, came to her apartment um, and either late that night or early the next morning. And Hernandez told her that he had killed a 17 year old girl. He said that he had slit her throat and that Owens had stabbed her in front of Buck. Hernandez had asked Bierman how to get the blood out of his shoes and Bierman had told him to shut up. So she is corroborating that mm-hmm. part of the story. Yeah. Next, Sherry Bierman took the stand in her own defense. (laughs) (laughs) Always a wise choice. Right. And she told a little different version of that night's events. Okay. So Sherry testifies that Hernandez and Owens came to her house Saturday, Saturday, February 18th at 7 p.m. They took her children to a babysitter, and then Owens, Hernandez, and Bierman ultimately returned to her house. They went directly to her basement bedroom. Cindy, Lisa, and Renee were upstairs. Bierman stated that she, Owens, and Hernandez left around 11.30 p.m. um, and that they drove over to Owens' apartment. Bierman and Hernandez then went and picked up her children in her car. And then after picking them up, brought them back over to Owen's apartment. So, so far, her version mm-hmm. of the events, same. Um, Sherry testified that she left her children at Owen's apartment with Lewis and Riley. And then that the three of them, Owen's, Hernandez and Bierman, returned to the Bierman house. They went downstairs to her bedroom. Owen's left the room and Bierman and Hernandez had sex. So Bierman denies having three-way bondage sex. However, <laughs> Owen's chain belt was found in Sherry's room. Hmm. So if he left the room while the sex is going on, what's his belt doing on the floor in there? You know, when you leave a room and you just leave, leave an article your- of clothing behind. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. Normal stuff. Yes. That's why we're recording this without pants on. Because we walked through my living room. I thought it was because it had been so hot in here the last few times. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> After the mystery sex, either two or three people were involved. (laughs) Uh The world may never know. Mm -hmm. Um, Hernandez and Bierman get dressed and they went upstairs at Hernandez's suggestion. So Sherry testifies that she had not seen um, Owens since he left the bedroom. When they... When he flung off his belt. Off his belt and left the bedroom, yes. Um, Hernandez. (laughs) Hernandez... Commenced throwing things off the TV. Bierman asked, what are you doing? And Hernandez told her to shut up. She testified that she then ran downstairs, locked the push button lock on the doorknob and fastened the door chain. Mm-hmm. So her version of events is that, yes, the beginning part that they said that all happened. But when we came back to the house, I only had sex with Hernandez. I didn't have sex with AJ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they started to ransack my house, I ran downstairs and locked the door and hid in the basement. Mm-hmm. So she then continues to testify and she says that she heard things hitting the floor. She stated that she didn't know if um, Cindy was home at the time and that maybe five to ten minutes later, the basement door was kicked in. 
Um, Hold on. Um, do you know, did she have a phone down there? She, uh, uh, did you? <laughs> so, Beerman did not use the phone in her bedroom to call the police. Uh-huh. Yes. So, yes, she did have a phone down there, Kristen. Very astute observation. <laughs> you know, I've got some assumptions about why belts are left behind, you know. <laughs> This is why we're here for this expert That's analysis. Right. That is right. So she's hiding in the basement. She's scared for her life. She doesn't know what's going on upstairs. Maybe her sister's up there. Maybe not. But she has access to a phone and an exit, it sounds like, because they have been coming and going in yeah. and out of this basement yeah. without anybody else seeing them. So, but she's just hiding down there for if only there was like a three-digit number she could have called in that situation right exactly (laughs) damn so after the basement doors kicked in hernandez comes down and he says let's go do what i say or i'm going to do it to you (laughs) whatever that means (laughs) beerman testifies that she was scared um hernandez put the computer in the car and other items from the beerman home were already there Mm mm-hmm at this point, they drive back to Owen's apartment. Um, and as she stated on the stand was that she went back there because she had to get her babies. She picked up her children and then she denied helping unload the stolen property. Hernandez told her to call police, report a bar- burglary. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> report Gary. Yeah. I am not putting the word burglary or dispatch in any more of these episodes. <laughs> From now on, when you're researching a case, if someone gets robbed, it's too bad. Too bad. I can't cover that story. (laughs) People who are in it for the murder alone. Yes. (laughs) So he tells her to call police, report a burglary, and not tell who did it. Beerman testifies that she left Owen's apartment at approximately 2 or 2.30 a.m., um, with her children in her car, and she drove around trying to calm down before going home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. She then, when she returned home, used the kitchen phone to call 911 to report the burglary. At that time, she said she was not aware that anything other than a burglary had taken place. She then went upstairs to her parents' bedroom and then to her sister's bedroom where she saw her sister and blood was everywhere. And that's when she says she called the police um, again from her parents' bedroom. Okay. But if you'll remember what I said at the beginning of the story, here's where I have a problem with this. Mm -hmm. She called the police, said that she had just come home. She believed the place had been robbed and maybe there was still someone, someone in the house. Right. And they told her, you know, go next, leave the house, go next door. Um, call the police yeah. back. But she called them 30 seconds later saying she'd found her sister's body. Mm-hmm. So in the 30 seconds that she's in the kitchen, she manages to go upstairs, check her parents' bedroom, check her sister's bedroom, find her dead bloody body on the floor, and then go back into her parents' bedroom and call police again? That doesn't match up to me. None of it makes sense to Well, me. yes. <laughs> I mean, just from the very basic thing of, you truly think someone else is in the home? I am glad not- that you say this. Okay. Because when I was a teenager. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh my God. I have a story for you. Yeah. What happened? Okay. So when I was a teenager, I was at home. I was at my dad's house. I was by myself. And I heard this like loud bang in the basement. Oh. And so I, what do I do? I go down to the basement. Are you serious? Yes. I go down to the basement and our basement was finished, but we had like this, 
um, storage room off to one side and there was like a walkout door from that one side. And so I walk back there and that basement door that walks out was standing wide open. (gasps) And so I like fucking ran up those stairs, slammed the door, locked the door to the basement so that if somebody was down there, I guess they'd be locked down there or they'd have to go out the back door. I don't fucking know. And then I left the house and I didn't call the police, but I did call my sister. (laughs) What? I called my sister who was at work and she and a guy from her work came to the house and like checked it out. What? Yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Should I have called the police? Oh my God. What if it was nothing, which it turned out to be? There was nobody in the basement. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I don't understand any of that. down to the basement no. at all no no you would have just called the police okay well hold on let me let me try to put myself in your <laughs> shoes and i'm trying to think of times when i've been in really sketchy yeah situations see i've never been in any, anything right. like that before well it turns out it wasn't that sketchy of a situation no. nothing was going on but the but, back door was standing open but when it seems sketchy, yes um yeah, when anything seems sketchy, I always have my dog with me. Yeah. Um, she seems very ferocious. She does seem that but way. I don't. The diabetes it. slows her down. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, if we have any potential robbers listening to this, she doesn't have diabetes. She's doing great. <laughs> you do not want to mess with this nine-year-old dog. No, I... She is a beast. Yeah. I... I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to trouble the police. I feel like I would trouble the police. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and especially, so you're talking about your sister Casey, right? Yeah. I feel like especially if I were in her shoes mm-hmm. and Kyla called me and was yeah. like, oh my gosh, you know, something's going on. I wouldn't be like, wait there. Wait there. <laughs> I'm well, the they one. Well, to, they told me to get out of the house. Well, like sure. I waited okay. out yeah. of, outside of the house for them to come. Sure. Um, yeah, I feel like I'd be like, time to call the police. (laughs) (laughs) What turns, it turns out what probably happened Uh is that that basement door wasn't latched properly. And so like a wind gust or something had come and the door had swung open and then like slammed against the wall. And that's what the big thump was, but could have been a murderer. Honestly, it sounds like the beginning of every horror movie right. ever. The cute 17-year-old yeah. girl is like, oh, I hear something terrible from downstairs. Better, were you wearing just a tank top? <laughs> Going down the stairs. <laughs> no, I had a turtleneck on. <laughs> okay, okay. Snow yeah. pants. That's what ensured your survival. Yes. <laughs> you ran, but then you fell. Yes. <laughs> on something wet, probably. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so back to back to Piper in 1989. Please, no. Let's go. <laughs> I, okay, I will tell you. The yes. one time when I thought a murderer mm-hmm. was after me, I was on a walk. Well, actually, there's been a couple times that I've thought a murderer was after me on a walk. <laughs> Maybe it's the paranoia. Um, <laughs> but there was one time I was walking down the street with Peanut, uh-huh. and it was dark, and there was a tall man walking several yards behind me Uh but it was kind of like okay we're the only ones on the street i'm concerned yeah and so i try to like sneak a peek at him (laughs) 
surreptitiously, and I see that he's wearing a hat that obscures his face, and I see that he's a lot taller than me. Well, great. Yeah, which I'm, I'm not used to people being a lot taller yeah, than me. So you're I was tall. Like, yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, not great. No, this is not a great setup. I'm not going to be able to just headbutt this guy and <laughs> surprise him. So I was like, okay, cross the street. Mm-hmm. So I cross the street. He crosses, he crosses the street. <laughs> I cross the street back. He crosses the street. Oh my gosh. So at this point, I'm like, I'm not paranoid. Yeah. He's going to kill me. Yeah. I have my pepper spray out. I'm ready. And I start, you know, (laughs) speed walking, booking it. I've got, I've got the pepper spray on the Olympic speed walking team all of a sudden. (laughs) And I got away from him and, you know, got into my apartment safe and sound. (laughs) Next day I go to work. The features editor at the newspaper I worked at was like, hey, Kristen, um, I wasn't trying to hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) He was this really tall guy, the nicest guy, like super Christian, sweet man with a family. And he was just trying to say hi. (laughs) And I was like, not today. Not today. <laughs> you try to say hello to me at amazing. like nine o'clock at night. I will pepper spray. I will spray. pepper spray you. <laughs> That's amazing. So I live to tell the tale. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, I barely made it out of there alive. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's amazing. Well, now we know how we handle crisis. <laughs> I underreact and you overreact. I blow it up. (laughs) I'm like, death is near. Death is near. Oh, God. Okay. So now we're back to... Yes. Back to Sherry on the stand here in court. And she says, you know, I didn't... I was hiding in the basement. They forced me. You know, whatever. I get back to the house. I call the police. Whatever. Um, And she testifies on the stand that she also um, had not seen, didn't have any knowledge of the two-by-fours before she saw them as they were entered into evidence Mm -hmm. in court. So. Okay. Okay. So she's telling one version. Wait, wait. I'm I'm sorry. Yes. I was just nodding along like an idiot. She's saying she had no idea about the two-by-fours? Two-by-fours. Even though they were in the car? She says she's never seen them before, did not tell them to get them from a construction site. Yeah. She has no knowledge of these two-by-fours until she saw them in evidence in court. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So here's the problem with her version of the thing, of events. Of everything? Well, she's the only one fucking telling that version. You got, I don't know, five other people over yeah. here who are like, no, this is how it happened. Uh-huh. So now there's going to be some evidence that's going to that be totally pretty... backs her up, right? N- no, ma'am. What? Yes. <laughs> You're kidding. So the coroner and the pathologist who performed the autopsy testify. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Alan Hancock, the Wyandotte County coroner, he um, went to the Beerman residence shortly after Cindy's body was discovered. Um, He testified at trial that there were wounds to Cindy's hands and arms, which appeared to be defensive. And um, that her throat... Wow. And that her throat... (laughs) (laughs) Was slit 
and after she had been beaten and when she was in deep, profound shock. So it was one of the last things that was done to her. Um, Dr. Hancock concluded that the entire episode probably took several minutes to occur. So this wasn't like a real quick thing. Um, Then the pathologist who conducted the autopsy, Dr. Philip Van (laughs) Thulenar... That sounds completely made up. T-H-U-L-L-E-N-A-R. Thulinar. Thulinar. This sounds like an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza is like making up a name for himself. (laughs) This is his art vandalics. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Dr. Van Thulinar, he testified that there were many wounds on Cindy's hand and neck. Her cheekbone was fractured, and the bone above her eye was fractured and displaced. Mm. Van Thulinar identified a faint oval bruise on Cindy's right forehead. The bruise had a number of... Her right forehead? (laughs) Sorry. Not her left forehead. Everybody's got two foreheads. (laughs) On the right side of her forehead? You like that better? (laughs) Hey, I don't know what kind of crazy head she had. (laughs) <laughs> I like that you were stuck on forehead, so you didn't even hear me call a bruise a bruise. <laughs> You're slipping in all kinds of good stuff today. <laughs> okay, so the bruise on her right forehead <laughs> had a number of evenly spaced cross marks. It was typical of a shoe mark. Van Thulinar oh. stated that the bruise was probably from the sole of a woman's shoe. Yeah, so the two guys have two by fours and the sister has a shoe. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So she, like, stood on her sister's head, basically, oh. is what that says. Ugh. Ugh. Um, there were seven superficial wounds on the left side of Cindy's neck a wound on the right side of her neck cut the carotid artery and the jugular vein. Ugh. Stab wounds were identified on each side of Cindy's abdomen. Van Thulinar determined that the amount of blood and the tissue from the head wounds were... Oh, I'm sorry. I put the emphasis on that. <laughs> Van Thulinar determined from the amount of blood in the tissues that the head wounds were inflicted first, then the neck wounds, followed by the wounds to the abdomen. The cause of death was loss of blood. So she bled out. Poor girl. Yeah. What a horrible way to die. Mm Mm-hmm. So the jury found both Sherry Bierman and Archie Owens guilty, and Uh, they were sentenced to life in prison. Sherry was actually sentenced to 15 years to life. Um, And I don't know about a minimum on Archie Owens. I couldn't find that info. I think 15 years to life sounds like... Super fucking low. Uh, yeah, I agree. So there must have been some part of Sherry's version of events that led the, that left some kind of question about her willingness to participate. I feel yeah, like that's I pretty. Mean, maybe if they really believed, okay, well, she didn't have a two by four. She inflicted mm-hmm. less damage. But I kind of feel like, uh, clearly she, this had to have been her idea. I mean, she. I mean, Sure, right? she was the one who hated her sister. Yeah. I Yeah. I don't know. So um 
both remain in prison at this time. They're both still yeah. in prison. Joseph Hernandez, he was also sentenced to life in prison after pleading guilty. He was actually paroled in uh, March of 2012 after serving 23 years. So because he was kind of the first one to say, okay, mm-hmm. I'm done with this. He kind of took, yeah, he yeah. took responsibility for what he did. He pled guilty. So yeah, he's been paroled. He's well, been out. He, he did try to dress up his story a little bit, he, right? It seemed that way, maybe? I don't know. I think okay. that his is mostly is corroborated by other... Okay, okay. Uh, other than the part that he said he didn't stab her. I guess you're you're right there. He okay. said he wasn't involved in that portion of it, that he'd already gone back downstairs. Okay, see, that's what I'm remembering, yes. that he yes. was like, I, I did some bad stuff and then I left the room. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you're right. Yes, he did try to minimize what he did to some degree. I will accept a certificate. <laughs> For remembering what was said 15 minutes ago. Yes. <laughs> um, after the trial, the girl's mother, Barbara Bierman, read a statement to the press over the telephone. She said, The pain of our losses is deep and raw. Before we can even begin to heal, the publicity must stop so we can deal with our feelings privately and reconstruct our lives as positively as possible. We appreciate the care and concern shown to us by the community and the Kansas City area as a whole. There are many caring people in the world, and we have gained strength from our faith and the love that has surrounded us from family, friends, and strangers. Wow. Yeah. It's a pretty pretty powerful uh, sentiment. And (sighs) they're pretty... I've read some stuff about the parents, and I'll go into it a little Mm -hmm. bit more here in a minute. But... They were deeply religious. Okay. And so I think that a lot of that, their wow. belief, you know, their strength comes from that. But they seem like very strong people. Yeah. That would just be horrible. Yeah. So let's talk about motive. Yeah. What the hell? Was it just a robbery gone wrong? No. It has been widely reported that there was a lot of jealousy yeah. going on in the home. So... Sherry was actually the Beerman's adopted daughter. Okay. And Cindy was their biological daughter. And she was this rock star who was doing all this great stuff. Yes. And yes. She wasn't living in the and basement. And so yeah. Sherry was very jealous of Cindy and believed that she was treated very differently by her parents. That they mm-hmm. loved her more because she was their, you know, biological child. Here's my thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. You've got... The younger sister, Cindy, who's this, like you just said, this rock star. She's an honor student. She's getting mm-hmm. going to college. She's doing all these extracurricular events. She's involved in her church. And then you've got their other daughter, biological or not, who is divorced. Mm-hmm. May is, I don't know, having random sex with men and maybe is not living her best life. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not that her parents are treating them differently. Maybe it's that she wasn't living the life that they thought that she should live. Yeah. And even even if they did treat them differently. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it ha- probably has very little to do with their or- origins. Yeah. And probably more to do with their life decisions. Yeah. And even if it didn't, you don't get to kill your that's, sister. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Like, I... I have a pretty fantastic sister. Yeah. Uh, I don't get to do bad stuff to her. No, you know? yes. I have three great sisters, and have we always gotten along? No. Have I ever what? thought about murdering them? <laughs> Never once. 
<laughs> Not seriously, anyway. <laughs> Pretty terrible. So, so by so they had so now they're I assume raising the grandkids, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So the um, the Beerman sisters, their parents, Barbara and Leonard Beerman, they actually became active members of the Kansas City chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. Wow. Parents wow. of Murdered Children is a group that makes a difference through ongoing emotional support, education, prevention, advocacy, and awareness. Um, they have become very involved with that. They uh, do lots of events with that. And then they also have said that, yes, that the grandchildren have been kind of the light of their life, but mm-hmm. it's also painful because sure. of where they come from because of who their mother is. So I just wanted to kind of close with this quote from Barbara, the girl's mother. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, this was in an article that I read that talked about just um, the parents of murdered children group in mm-hmm. general. She said, um, people don't know what to say to a mother who is the parent of both the victim and the killer. Mm-hmm. No matter what, they were both our daughters. It's been a double edged sword. You deal with this situation the best you can. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, those poor parents. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because what What yeah. the hell do you say? What do you? Yeah. It's hard enough just when someone loses somebody. Absolutely. To know what to, to, know what to say. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. That was a crazy one. It was pretty crazy. And so sad. Really, really sad. But um, she's obviously been in prison for more than 15 years. So, yes, this is interesting. So she actually has gotten another conviction since she's been in prison. So I was reading about her a little Whoa. bit. And like I said, this is a pretty, I mean, this isn't a huge, no, like, famous case. Right, this was right. a little bit difficult to find information on. But I looked at some, like, prison records for that Sherry Beerman. So cool. Yes. Okay. And she has gotten, she got um, a conviction, a fe- another felony conviction for some kind of... Um, contraband scheme. So I don't know the specifics of it, but I know Mm -hmm. I read a little bit about it and it looks like she was running this kind of like, or she was involved. I don't know that she was running it, but she was involved with this contraband for sexual favors thing that was going on with some guards in prison. Yes. So this guard that was kind of doing it. Uh-huh. He, it really came to light, and I didn't write any of this down, so. Yeah. <laughs> so don't question so don't, it. Yes, this is all, I mean, this. I have a photographic memory, and all uh-huh. this is 100% accurate. Okay, great. <laughs> um, he had, he and Sherry had been romantically involved for a while, and they'd okay. been doing this contraband thing, and it had mm. been going on and whatever. And then somehow somebody got wind of it that she was involved, and she ended up getting this conviction. And so he, like, cooled it on her, and she was, like, this jilted ex-lover now. She's pissed. Uh-huh. So then this other woman is now doing it with him. Mm-hmm. Well, she winds up pregnant. Oh, my God. What is this? Orange is the New Black? Yes. Oh, my god. She winds up pregnant, has, like, a secret abortion. Uh, they try and, like, Whoa. sneak in the abortion pill into prison for her to take it. First, they sneak in Plan B, and it doesn't work. And so then they try and sneak in this abortion pill, and it doesn't work. And so now she needs, like, a full-on abortion. And oh my Sherry, gosh. from what I understand, writes this anonymous letter and is like, hey, this is who's involved. But it wasn't that anonymous because, I mean, how do you write yeah. an anonymous letter in prison 
anyway. So yeah, exactly. They tra- trace it back to her and the whole thing blew up and it turned into this whole, it was a whole ring. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that is nuts. Yes. <laughs> so I assume that guard is in prison now. I would assume so. I would hope yes. so. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on in Kansas prisons, apparently. Um, well, I've got some more stuff on Kansas. On Kansas, City, City, Kansas. Kansas, yes. None of it's good. No. <laughs> <laughs> this this is gonna be a bummer of an episode. Oh hell. <laughs> it's it's gonna make everyone from Kansas City go, ooh. Or maybe it'll be make people be like I'm actually on the Missouri side, so it doesn't really count for me. Um, I'm actually in a suburb of Kansas. I, <laughs> yeah. I do happen to live on the Kansas side, but I'm in a suburb, so. Yeah, for people who are, like, outside our little range, it's like, <laughs> you know, so Kansas City, there's the Kansas side, there's the Missouri side of it, and usually when we say Kansas City, it encompasses, like, a million different suburbs. Yes. <laughs> but the minute anything bad happens in one of the Kansas cities, like, we're whoa, like, whoa, 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 whoa. So I just want to start this by saying that I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm in a suburb. <laughs> now, the fact that Kansas City, Kansas is right down the road for both of us. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, just minor detail. For, for these cases of sadness and corruption, we don't claim it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Next time something cool happens there, then we for sure claim it. Real we fast. live there. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Lamonte McIntyre. It's um, it's a crazy story. It's horrible. Um, so let's get into it. Yes! <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts! Oh, gosh. So let's start with the crime. April 15th, 1994, 2 o'clock in the afternoon in Kansas City, Kansas. A young man dressed all in black carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, approaches a light blue Cadillac. In the Cadillac are Donald Ewing and his cousin, Danielle Quinn. And again, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, so, you know, they're not alone. There are witnesses. Um, Danielle's father was nearby. So was his other cousin, Nico. Nico's mom, Josephine. Um, Josephine's other daughter, Stacy, which, when I was reading the article, I was like, well, wouldn't Josephine just be his aunt? But, you know, whatever. Whatever. You know. So there are a handful of witnesses all right there, including a neighbor, Ruby Mitchell. And she sees this guy with the gun and she immediately recognizes him. She's like, oh, that's Lamonte. He's that guy who hangs out with my niece sometimes. And Mm -hmm. she's so sure that it's this Lamonte guy that she almost calls out to him. Um, But then, you know, he approaches the car, shoots four times into it, kills both of the men in the car. And I mean... Sounds horrible. It is horrible. Danielle's oh dad God. was right there. He ran over to the car, was doing anything he could to try to get in to his dying son. He tried to break through a window with the butt of a wine bottle, you know, just to oh just to be gosh. there. Yeah. So horrible, horrible crime. The killer runs back the way he came. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Ruby Mitchell ends up telling police, hey, I think the shooter was this Lamonte guy who used to hang out with my niece. He was about five foot six. Mm-hmm. He had his hair in French braids. Mm-hmm. I uh, don't think that. Now here's, now, here's the thing. The article said French braids. 
<laughs> which I'm assuming surely there wouldn't have been, you know, I, I trust that she must have said French braids, but I have never seen a man wear no. French braids. I mean, surely she meant cornrows. Cornrows. I'm yeah, sure surely. she meant cornrows. Because <laughs> I hear French braids and I think like, 11-year-old girl on a horse, you yeah. know, with just the two braids yes. going down the back. But at any rate, she at some point told police that he had French braids. <laughs> they have bows in the end of <laughs> You'd think that would make him really easy to catch. <laughs> a man with French braids. Oh, now, I, I should just jump in. Um... If he was actually wearing French braids, <laughs> sir, we are in no way ins- insulting no, you. No, not at all. <laughs> to the real killer out there. Yes. If, if you wore French braids, I'm sure it looked great. I'm sure it looked amazing on you. Yeah. So you would think, you know, the police have just been told, oh, it's this Lamonte guy who talks to my niece sometimes. You and I are not police officers, but I feel like the next logical step is, okay, let's go talk to the niece then let's go talk to that Lamonte. Yeah. Do the police do it? No. 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 They um, don't interview the niece, and they never talk to that Lamonte. Do they talk to a different Lamonte? Yes. What? Yes. All right. So they set their sights on a different Lamonte. Mm. Lamonte McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what he was doing on the day of the crime. Okay. He was 17 years old, Mm -hmm. and he skipped school. Oh, hell. I know. (laughs) Ugh. I know. I feel like this is, like, what your parents should warn you about. (laughs) Like, like don't say you can't skip school because you're not going to learn stuff. Like, don't skip school because then you can't prove where you were. Yeah. And you might be fucking put away for 23 years for a crime you didn't commit. I mean, that would scare the shit out of me. Yeah, I mean... Parents scare us. So there, yes. there you go. That's that's your next speech. Any parents yes. who are listening. We're giving up two people who don't have children. Giving amazing parenting advice right now. Don't question it, folks. Yeah. Okay, so that day, Lamonte basically hung out at his aunt's house. So his two aunts... Um, I'm trying to switch to the fancy East Coast aunt. I know. When I'm really Midwest trash and I just say aunt. Like every now and then I catch myself and I try to class it up a bit, but I always fall back down. Okay, anyway. I'm going to be who I am. (laughs) So his aunts lived really close to each other and he basically spent the whole day with his cousins kind of going back and forth between the two houses watching TV all day. Uh So he was surrounded by people all day. Five people uh-huh. could account for where he was right. all day. Did that matter? No. No. So that evening, his grandma called him and said, hey, the police are looking for you. They want to ask you a few questions. Now, at the time, he really didn't think it was too big a deal. He'd been caught with, I think, a pretty small amount of drugs mm-hmm. a little bit prior. He was scheduled to go to juvenile detention. So he assumed they needed to talk to him about that. Yeah. So he calls his mom, Rosie, up says, the police need to talk to me. Rosie says, okay, I'll take you to the station. They go to the station. Almost immediately, he is charged with a double murder. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, no questions beforehand? Just... Um, it was pretty much... <sighs> Ugh. I mean, this this case... 
is as bad as it sounds and worse. Oh, God. Okay. Um, Thanks for giving us an upper today. <laughs> if you feel too good today, just yeah, listen. Just keep listen listening. To this episode. <laughs> You're like, things are going too well. <laughs> so about six months later, his trial begins. Um, and because he's, it's a double murder, Lamonte is tried as an adult. And I think they might have actually waited until he turned 18 mm-hmm. to have this trial. Mm-hmm. He pleads not guilty. Yeah. He couldn't afford an attorney, so the court appoints him Gary Long. Here's what Lamonte did not know about his new lawyer, Gary Long. Mm-hmm. Two years prior, and I'm quoting from this amazing Kansas City Star article by Eric Adler that mm-hmm. you should read. Um, it said, Hold on, let me read it real fast. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have 20 minutes of silence. It's a long we article. Could, we could pause the recording. We're not going to. Mm. No, no, certainly not. So the article says, the Kansas, City, the Kansas Supreme Court informally admonished Long for failing to diligently pursue a client's discrimination action. What? Yeah. So that had happened two years prior, this informal oh, admonishment, which... So he's getting, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the C-team lawyer. <laughs> I think that sounds like a compliment yeah. to me. <laughs> I just, I read informally admonished and I was like, what the hell does that even mean? Yeah. All I know is the next time I fuck up royally, I would like to be informally, informally admonished, admonished. Because it sounds like nothing. Yeah. Um, well, and we're talking about fucking up with somebody's lawsuit, somebody's court case. Mm-hmm. That's impacting their entire fucking life. Oh, it gets worse. Okay. Ready for more on this guy? No. You thought that was like his one mistake as a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Here's another thing. So that happened two years earlier. During the time that Lamonte was his client, Gary Long was on two years of supervised probation for failing to competently and diligently handle the cases of three other clients. Oh, my gosh. Um, why is... Okay, first of all, why don't... Oh, I don't even know how to phrase <laughs> this. Okay, people who cannot afford, afford a lawyer deserve mm-hmm. more than this. They don't get, like, yeah. the shitty lawyer that can't work anymore because no one will hire him. That's not what you get. You're supposed to get an equal level of attorney provided for you. Yeah, you're supposed to get an effective yes. attorney. Supposed to. I... I'm loving your reaction to this because when I was reading this, I would, there was like a white hot fire shooting (laughs) out of me and I just, I had to walk away multiple times. Uh, I mean, everything about this is so incredibly unfair and infuriating. Yeah. And man, if the justice system were a person, you'd want to punch it in the face. So I've told you a little bit about this attorney. I could go on, but I'm just going to give you... I can't handle it, Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to give you the big thing. This guy was disbarred in 1998. Okay, wait, how does that work? It basically is like, you are so bad that they're like, you can no longer have your law license. We're taking it away. But then how does he... Was he disbarred in one state, but he still gets to be a lawyer in another state? How does that work? So I believe you are disbarred state by state. I, uh-huh. I don't think it's like a... Yeah. 
I'm going to be honest. I have no fucking clue. But I really do think it's like you're the the law expert. (laughs) Yeah. My one semester. (laughs) My one semester of law school. Why didn't they cover everything? Everything. (laughs) They should have known I was going to drop out. They should have been like, we need to cram everything Everything in there. One semester. (laughs) So I believe it was just like he was licensed. Okay. To practice in Kansas. Kansas took it away. Um. Don't worry, though. He got his license back in 2015. In case you're looking for an attorney. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, the one negative thing that Lamonte did know about his attorney was that Gary Long had never worked a double murder. Um, but Lamonte wasn't worried. He was innocent. He had an alibi. Five yeah. people could attest to where he was all day. We've learned from past cases that that does not matter. Speaking of past cases, I'm going to read you a quote. You tell me who this reminds you of. Here's a quote from from Lamate. I wasn't really scared or worried. I was innocent. I thought the truth will come out and everything will be okay. That's almost exactly what Damien Eccles said. Yeah, yeah. Almost exactly. I When I read that, I was just <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Damien Eccles um, from West Memphis 3 that yes. you covered a few weeks ago. Yes. I mean, I think he was 18 too. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just wonder if like being young enough and you think, well, I'm clearly innocent of this. Yeah. There's n- how there's no way that they could convict me of something that I did not do. That's not the way the justice system yeah. works. Okay. Uh, so the my tr- stomach is like in a knot right now over this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a horrible. <sighs> it's horrible. So the trial begins. Lamonte has his lawyer, Gary Long, who at that moment is under supervised probation. It's better than that unsupervised <laughs> probation that we had in Robert Courtney's wife. Yeah, she got unsupervised probation. We were like, uh, what the what hell is that? That sounds like a fat load of nothing. Yes. That sounds like go to your room. Yes. We won't make sure you go to your room, but... So the prosecuting attorney is Tara Moorhead, and the judge is Judge Dexter Burdett. Would you like to know a fun fact about these two? Yes. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Years before the trial, they'd been engaged in a romantic relationship together. Oh. So the judge, yeah. Don't you need to recuse yourself for conflict of interest in that situation? Ding, 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 ding. Did they do it? No. No. Fuck. So, obviously, that's a conflict of interest. Yeah. Obviously, you're supposed to come out with any conflict of interest. Um, I think probably just go ahead and recuse yourself. If nothing else, I imagine you would at least say, hey, here's this potential conflict of interest and let someone else decide, Mm -hmm. am I, as a judge, able to... Yeah. I just am really impressed by our our legal knowledge (laughs) that we both know recuse yourself. We are so smart. We know like five legal terms. I feel like we've run through all of them. We've used all of them. (laughs) Nothing new coming out now. That's it. That's all we got. It's all downhill from here, folks. So Gary Long, the defense attorney, said that he had heard rumors that the two of them had been romantically Mm -hmm. linked. But he assumed that they were just rumors because... 
you know, obviously one of them would have alerted him to the conflict of interest. You know, the judge would have recused himself. So he just assumed it was all on the up and up. Yeah. That's what you want your lawyer to do. Tons of assumptions. I want my lawyer making tons of assumptions. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm just going to throw this in there. Kansas Supreme Court has ruled that judges should always tell attorneys about any potential conflicts of interest. So that that falls under the category of fucking duh. Duh. Yes. yes. Duh. <laughs> so, fucking duh. I just, it makes me so mad. You know. Yes. You've got a kid whose life is on the line. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how. Uh. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm so glad we have a podcast because I'm so good at words right now. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm doing are angry yes. hand motions. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, Kristen, but they can't see those <laughs> hand gestures They're at just going to have to get a sense of it. <laughs> My tone says I'm using a lot of gestures. <laughs> I feel like maybe they can hear the whooshing noise. Because yeah, the mics are so good. Yes. <laughs> okay, so in her opening statement, prosecuting attorney Tara Moorhead told the jury that numerous confidential informants had all named Lamonte McIntyre as the shooter. More on this later. But again, you know, she's told the jury, hey, mm-hmm. lots of people can't tell you their names, but... Confidential informants. Mm-hmm. They, they named Lamonte McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Then she presented the physical evidence that they had against him. So I'm just going to read you a list of all the physical evidence they mm-hmm. had against Lamonte McIntyre. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck could they have against him? <laughs> they had nothing! nothing! They had nothing! <laughs> oh, I hate this. I hate this so much. Oh, God. I just, I can't believe they got away with this. Oh, um, they had no fingerprints, they had no weapon. They had no bloody clothes. You know, they had all these witnesses saying the shooter was wearing black pants, black shirt. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, They also had no motive. Yeah. They had no proof that Lamonte McIntyre even knew these two guys. So what's the theory that a 17-year-old kid skipped school to go shoot two random guys he didn't know? You're kidding. Oh, my gosh. So why didn't they have physical evidence? I would say because there was because none. Because he didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Number one, because he didn't do it. Number two, the police never looked for it. Oh, my god! They didn't do a search of his home. They didn't search his aunt's houses where he was mm-hmm. that day. <laughs> they, they got no search warrants. They didn't even, like, ask politely, may we come take a look around. Oh, my gosh. Didn't do any of that. My heart is beating so Yes! Fast. You're so fired up. <laughs> I just like... Ugh. So the prosecution called two, wit- two eyewitnesses. And this is what it all really came down to, these two eyewitnesses. One of the eyewitnesses was Nico Quinn, Danielle's cousin. She'd seen the gunman. After Lamonte McIntyre was arrested, the lead detective on the case, Roger Golubsky, came to her with a photo array. There were five photos... Oddly enough, and keep this in your hat for later, 
in this photo array of five people is Lamonte, Lamonte's brother, and Lamonte's first cousin. What? Yeah. Um, pretty odd, huh? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to find out more on that later. Oh, God. So she looks at the photos. She says, I don't know. A week later, she called Detective Golubsky and said, okay, it was number three. And number three was Lamonte McIntyre. On the stand, she claimed she knew it was number three right away, but she was scared to identify him initially. Then the prosecution called the other eyewitness, Ruby Mitchell, the neighbor who saw the whole thing. She was the one who looked and said, uh-huh. oh, that's that Lamonte guy, yeah. French braids, five foot six. Yes. Okay. So, you know, she... Wait, had, how, how tall is Lamonte? Not five foot six. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's, he's tall. Oh he's, my gosh. he's almost six feet tall. Oh, my gosh. And goes without saying, no French braids, nor <laughs> no cornrows, whatever you want to call yes. it. <laughs> so they presented her with a photo, photo lineup, and she identified the shooter as guy number three, Lamonte McIntyre. Mm-hmm. So, again, originally Ruby, Mac- Ruby Mitchell was referring to a different Lamonte that Lamonte was out of town at the time of the murder. So I just want to throw that out there okay. so, that, so, it's so not that we aren't thinking... Thinking it's this other Lamonte, yeah. Yeah. All Lamontes have had a rough time with yes. this. We don't, we don't need him in trouble yes. for this. So nonetheless, even though she had thought it was this other Lamonte, when she was on the witness stand, Ruby Mitchell said that Lamonte McIntyre was the one who she saw committing the crimes. Oh, God. <laughs> Peanuts fired up about this, too. <laughs> now I really hope that the dog barking was caught on the mics. Otherwise, that just sounded really weird. So Ruby Mitchell claimed that he looked exactly like the other Lamonte. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are the chances? Two Lamontes, Lamontes. looking exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Ugh. Then Detective Roger Golubsky was called to the stand. He said that after Ruby Mitchell identified the shooter as Lamonte, the police started to hear from various sources that it was Lamonte McIntyre. So at this point, Lamonte's attorney, Gary Long, objects. And he's like, "Mm, this is hearsay. So the prosecutor, Tara Moorhead, was like, "Uh uh-uh, I've got plenty of case law to back this up. This is perfectly Mm -hmm. okay. The two of them started to argue. The judge told the jury to leave for a little mm-hmm. bit. And eventually the judge is like, okay, Detective Golubsky can continue to use the term various sources or whatever. He can mm-hmm. continue to talk about this as long as he's vague. And then he kind of turns to Gary Long and he's like, but remember, you know, you can always cross-examine this witness. And Gary's Long, Gary Long is like, mm, nah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this kid didn't have a chance. No, no, he didn't have a fucking chance. Uh, so uh, I'm so upset right now. You're going to get so much more upset. Oh God. Uh, yeah. Cause Kristen, if you make me cry, <laughs> um, I, I made myself cry. Many oh, times. Shit. <laughs> well, I was researching this. It's just such a sad story. And like, you know, even this stuff I've told you now, Mm-hmm. You know, it's still clearly a very flimsy case. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but at least there are parts of it that maybe if you were in the jury, you could kind of be like, well, okay, here's this mm-hmm. detective who's been on the force for a really long time, and he's he's saying various mm-hmm. sources. Okay, well, why wouldn't I trust that? Anyway, okay, here we go. <laughs> so that was the prosecution's case. No physical evidence, two eyewitnesses. So the defense argued, of course, that Lamonte had an alibi. His five family members had been with him all day. And in his closing argument, Gary Long really hit home that the police didn't look for any evidence. You know, they didn't They didn't oh, care. He decided to give a closing argument? Yeah, he woke up. And <laughs> <laughs> he stumbled over. <laughs> So the quote from him is, they didn't try to find a shotgun. They didn't try to find the clothes. They didn't even try. They didn't care. They haven't brought you anybody in here that can show this man even knew who these people were. Okay. So the jury went into deliberation. They talked and talked and talked. Most people thought Lamonte was guilty. They did a vote. It was 10 to 2. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I would like to know how many white people were on the jury. Yeah. Also, how many assholes? I, I don't know. <laughs> Can we have a Venn diagram? Yes. <laughs> so, in this, in this great article from the Star, they interviewed one of these jurors. Mm-hmm. One of the two who was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He doesn't seem guilty. Gary Lauber was one of the jurors. He said he thought both sides were really sloppy. He thought the prosecution had a terrible case. He thought the defense didn't do a good job either. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said at one point he even thought to himself, were they just looking for a black guy named Lamonte? Right. Was was that what this all just came down to? Eventually he decided Lamonte was probably guilty, but the evidence they had on him just wasn't very strong. Which... In our legal system, it's reasonable doubt beyond yeah, a reasonable that is doubt. Exactly. Yeah, it's not just oh, they probably caught yeah. him. Yeah. Um. So Gary says that he caved. He and the other juror who thought Lamonte might be innocent eventually changed their votes. He's regretted uh. it ever since. He and I didn't write this part down, but I believe the article said that he eventually not that long afterward, called the prosecuting attorney up because he was feeling guilty mm-hmm. and kind of asked her, and she was like, don't worry, we had plenty we had plenty of evidence. All of that evidence they had. <laughs> we just didn't want to show it to you guys. Yeah. So they found Lamonte McIntyre guilty of both murders. He was sentenced to two life sentences. And it seems like he was shocked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the seriousness hit him very fast, and it immediately became clear that once they've got you, they've got you. Um, that said, a lot of people stood by him. His family stood by him. They knew that he didn't do this. And well, he was uh, he was with, with them. He was with a lot of them, but also, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. Two guys he didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> no motive. Yeah. Uh, his mom, Rosie McIntyre, was his strongest supporter, but it wasn't just his family who supported him. Uh, Sandra Newsom, who was Danielle Quinn's mother, so the victim. Yeah. She knew they had the wrong guy. <gasps> she absolutely knew it. Oh, my gosh. This is the part that makes me cry. I'm, like, welling up right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Um, so she gave, she gave this interview to the star. In it, she uses the N-word. I'm not going to do that, but I want to read, read you the quote anyway. 
she's talking about why this matters so much to her that Lamonte be freed. Mm -hmm. She said, he's somebody's son. He's somebody's son. He belongs to somebody. So that's enough. You don't just put a blank in jail because you found one. He belongs to somebody. His mother has a right to justice. Oh, my God. I know. Uh I know. This is fucking terrible. It's awful. It's awful. Oh, my God. Do you want a Kleenex? Yes, please. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, fuck. Oh. I... That quote made me cry four times yesterday. (laughs) Just because you think of having your son murdered. I know. This is somebody who had their son murdered. And she's like, no, this isn't the right person. And you're doing something horrible to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of all that, it's not just like, oops, we tried to find the right guy and we messed up. No, No, you didn't even try. Yeah. Yeah. And she knew there was racism involved. Mm. So it's like, it's everything. Yeah. It's everything piling up on her. So Sandra and Rosie actually became friends over the years. And Sandra vowed that she would not visit her son's grave until Lamonte was released. Oh, my God. Yeah. So over the years, Lamonte maintained his innocence. He made multiple attempts to reverse the conviction. In 1996... He asked for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. That was denied. 1997, he filed a motion saying that he'd had ineffective counsel at, at his trial. Judge Burdett, who was the judge mm-hmm. at the original trial, uh, said, no, you know, basically, uh, you didn't have a great attorney. You didn't have a terrible attorney. No, he had a terrible attorney. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we don't promise you a great one. We don't promise you a bad one. We promise you an effective one. I think you had an effective one. Goodbye. Oh, my gosh. At this point, I just want to point out um, that in the course of this, Lamonte ended up being represented by two lawyers who were eventually disbarred. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, The second was Mark Sashes. I don't know how to pronounce that, but, you know, anyway. (laughs) I'm just going to say his name. I have this, I have this, I have this anger and I'm like, you know what? Hmm, we're gonna, we're gonna putting you out there too, put, buddy. Put the name out there. Yeah. Uh, so he's getting shot down at every turn. He's trying to get uh, some justice from the justice system and that's not happening yeah. at all. And to make matters worse, people had a pretty good idea of who actually committed the crime. Really? Yes. Yes. <gasps> it was not some big secret. secret. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, Danielle Quinn and Donald Ewing, the two victims, did have drug problems. Um, the day they were shot, they had a crack pipe in the car with them. You know, I... Yeah. And I wish I had a list of good things to say about them, too, because, you right. know... But yeah. anyway, they had they had some drug problems. So, using the magical powers of common sense, a lot of people thought, hey, maybe this was a drug-related killing. Hey, maybe it wasn't just maybe. some random 17-year-old kid coming up and shooting Weird. two grown men to death. Yeah. What a fucking concept. Yeah. So he's he's in prison for this crime that no one thinks he doesn't, that he did. And then on top of that, people kind of have a pretty good idea of who actually did it. Mm-hmm. But the years keep passing by and it does not look good for Lamonte. Then around 2009, 
there's a glimmer of hope. Centurion Ministries, which is a nonprofit out of New Jersey that works to free wrongly convicted people, teamed up with Kansas City attorney and total rock star Cheryl Pilot to look at Lamonte mm-hmm. McIntyre's case. So Cheryl Pilot is very involved with the Midwest Innocence Project yeah. and has been for a long time. I went to church with her, so I know her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. It's very important that I insert myself into yes. this. No, I just... I. I think this is this is so exciting that there are people who yeah. who work to make the justice system work. Yeah. Because clearly it wasn't working right. for this guy or his family or the victim's parents. I yeah. Mean, it was working for no one. So she has a very impressive track record, I imagine, in everything she does, but specifically in fighting to mm-hmm. exonerate wrongfully convicted people. Okay, so Cheryl Pilot and Centurion Ministries worked on this case for years. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I are both very impatient people. Mm-hmm. And that's all I could think about this whole There's, time. Yeah, no um, way. The investigation took seven years. Holy so Lamonte shit. is sitting in prison. And by the way, this they started in like 2009. So yeah. he's been in there for a really yeah. long time. Um, so after this seven-year investigation, they wrote a motion for exoneration. Here's what they found out during the investigation. You think you're mad now. Get okay. ready. So the first thing I've already told you about, because I couldn't resist, the former romantic relationship mm-hmm. between the prosecuting attorney and the judge. Then they started looking at Roger Golubsky, the former lead detective. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one everybody kind of trusted when he said, oh, confidential informants. Yeah. Okay. So they uncovered some really disturbing stuff about him. And I want to just... Start by saying he was on the police force in Kansas City, Kansas for 35 years, mm-hmm. retired as a captain. Mm-hmm. I just burped. It was a reaction to him. <laughs> it's not because I'm gross. <laughs> so I'm going to read two quotes from the Kansas City Star article. This first is from a retired FBI agent named Alan Jenerick. He was investigating corruption in Kansas City, Kansas. Mm -hmm. And apparently when you investigate corruption in KCK, Roger Golubsky's name comes up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Here's what Alan said about Golubsky. As my investigation uncovered, he used the authority of his position to extort sexual favors from black females. Mm -hmm. These women complied with his demands because they knew they would be arrested if they said no. The women were powerless and Golubsky exploited them. Here's another one. This one's from a retired KCK police officer who who worked with Golubsky. She said, Golubsky made no secret of his activities. Golubsky also used his prostitutes as his informants. Once he had leverage or control over them, he could use that to obtain information for his cases from them. I emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) Let me let me start that quote again. Golubsky made no secret of his activities. Golubsky also used his prostitutes as his informants. Once he had leverage or control over them, he could use that to to obtain information for his cases from them, whether that information was true or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This guy's a giant dog turd. Uh, yeah, that's an insult to dog turds. <laughs> <I> w- <laughs> um, yeah, I have no words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I better just continue. Yep. Because he hasn't been formally charged with anything. Yep. 
yet. Okay, I, uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> In a 2016 affidavit, a former homicide detective with the KCK Police Department analyzed Golubsky's work on this case. So as part of their investigation, they had this KCK police officer kind of, or detective, go over the thing like, hey, in your professional opinion, Mm -hmm. what do you think of the job he did on this case? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The detective wrote a 17-page analysis, and he called the investigation grossly deficient. Mm -hmm. He essentially said... There was very little investigation actually done here. And when it was done, it was done poorly and not in accordance with police practices. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, He basically said this case was a big deal. It was a double murder. Yeah. You needed more evidence and information to back up these two eyewitness accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the eyewitnesses, turns out there's a lot more there, too. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's start with Nico Quinn, who was Danielle's cousin. She was the one who initially didn't ID Lamonte in that photo array, but later called Golubsky up and was like, yeah, it was number three. Here's what she has since said in the affidavits. As soon as she got to court that day, she saw Lamonte and knew he was not the shooter. Mm-hmm. He was too tall mm-hmm. and his ears were too big. <laughs> AKA Does that really hit the Kristen Pitt story. <laughs> Oh my god, if I'm ever wrongfully convicted of a crime, this is what they'll say. They'll get one look at me and be like, too tall. Ears like satellite dishes. I also want to say for the record, as a fellow big-eared person, I've seen pictures of Lamonte. I don't think his ears look that big. And you do not have big ears, so... Don't you lie to me. (laughs) I also want to say for the record, um, Brandy likes to lie to me about the size of my ears. She's like, oh, what? Oh, no, they're fine. They're normal. Then the other day, (laughs) I was, she was doing my hair. I had my head back, getting it washed. And then when I sat up, she starts cracking up. Why? I don't know. I hadn't said anything funny. Nothing had happened. Then she's like, oh, like a kiddie pool's worth of of water fell out of your ear. (laughs) Clearly, the evidence shows that my ears are big. Anyway, hopefully... They're the perfect size for your giant head. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. Anyway, (laughs) all I'm saying is when I saw that sentence, he was too tall and his ears were too big. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) Poor Lamonte. So, Nico Quinn says when she went to Tara Moorhead, the prosecuting attorney, because, you know, it's not like she went there, saw Lamonte wasn't the real shooter, and then just shut up. She actually went to the prosecuting attorney and shared her concerns. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. She was like, you've got the wrong guy. Now, here's a quote from her affidavit. Miss Moorhead dismissed my statement and told me that I could be held in contempt and go to jail and have my children taken away. <gasps> oh, mm. my fucking God. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So. No, you just go right along with this. It's. Yeah. Uh, oh. 
Horrible. This case is fucking horrible, Kristen. Yeah. And I mean... And I'm blaming it all on you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just... I feel terrible for her because then, yeah, what mother would be like, okay, I guess I'm going to get my kids taken away. I I don't know. This just... It's horrible, horrible, horrible. horrible. So, um... But that's not all. Nico Quinn's mother, Josephine, also witnessed the crime that day. She was not called to the witness stand, but when she got there and saw Lamonte, she was also like, no, that's that's not the guy. So she also took her concerns to the prosecution. This is what drives me fucking nuts, because it's not like a case where everyone did the wrong thing and everyone shut up and yeah. you know nobody knew the real... There were people yeah. saying, yes. like, no, this is wrong. This is yes. not the person. Yes. People were doing what they should have done. Uh. And the people in power... Yeah. Mm. Okay. So she took her concerns to the prosecution. And here's what she said in her affidavit. Miss Moorhead told me it was too late for her to do anything, that the jury was deliberating. It was in the hands of the jury. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I also want to say that, for the record, these both these women signed affidavits saying this in the 90s. Oh, my um, God. I think, like, 1996, 1997. I wonder if this was tied to his attempt for a new trial. Right. I don't know, but I assume. Um, so they wanted the truth to come out mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. You know, again, they they say they came forward right away, and then they tried to make it right. <sighs> mm. So this leaves the second eyewitness who testified, Ruby Mitchell. She was the one who identified, you know, this is a Lamonte. Yes. So Jim McCloskey, who's the founder of Centurion Ministry, who's, who was working with Cheryl yeah. Pilot on this case, he brought up some pretty relevant points in the Casey Star article. He was like, first of all, why didn't law enforcement talk to the niece? That yeah. seems like the step one. Yeah. Um, and say, who's this Lamonte guy? And then go talk to that Lamonte. Yeah. According to him... Detective Golubsky only talked to Ruby Mitchell's niece a few days before the trial. Oh, my gosh. And Jim McCloskey says he's the first person to have interviewed Lamonte Drain, who was the Mm -hmm. Lamonte she was talking about. Police didn't interview him. Oh, my gosh. (sighs) So there's a lot of speculation about how Ruby Mitchell actually came up with the last name McIntyre. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to read part of the transcript of Golubsky's interview with Ruby Mitchell the night of the murders. Yeah. Um, This was not shared at trial. Okay. This is right after she's identified Lamonte in a photo array, and here's how it goes. Golubsky. Are you absolutely sure this is the party who did the shooting? Mitchell. Yes. Golubsky. Who is this party? Mitchell. Lamonte. Golubsky. Do you know his last name? Mitchell. Yes. Golubsky. What is it? Mitchell. McIntyre. Golubsky. How do you know this party? Mitchell. Because he used to talk to my niece. Mm. So to me, that says she was obviously fed that last night. And she was confused. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Here's another thing. You look like a puddle right now. This (laughs) case is disgusting. Your shoulders are like as far down as I've ever seen them. This This is is, horrible. This is a comedy podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you guys laughing? 
laughing. Yeah, you do. Are you? Are we all having fun? Yeah. Do we all want to move to KCK now? Oh Lord. Okay. So, again, in the trial, prosecuting attorney and Detective Golubsky both talked about these various sources who named Lamonte McIntyre as the killer. Mm -hmm. The investigation showed there was nothing in the police files to show that these various sources actually exist. Nothing in the police files. They just made it up. I don't think we can legally say that, but... Mm-hmm. Allegedly. They allegedly... Could we use common sense? Yeah. Could we... Uh, yeah. I mean, this is... Uh, this is why... I know I always bring back everything to journalism but like this is why you aren't supposed to rely on anonymous sources mm-hmm. a lot because it's just too tempting yeah it is too tempting to get sloppy mm-hmm. or um god forbid make shit make up, shit up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but wait there's more <laughs> oh god remember all that stuff about galupski being a huge creep yep Okay, in 2011, Ruby Mitchell signed an affidavit saying that during their drive to the police station, Golubsky made some comments that she found pretty disturbing. He started complimenting her figure, telling her she was pretty, um, asking if she liked to date white men, and telling her that he liked to date black women. So that obviously made her uncomfortable, freaked her out. She was really nervous about his motives. She said she wondered, was he going to arrest me for solicitation? Was he going to try to offer me money for sex? You know, she was uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's such a creep. Yeah. So, for the record, none of that happened. But I think it's really important. Here's this key witness, and she felt really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and threatened around the lead detective. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So, the new investigation also brought up information about the more likely killer. You know, the one people generally thought actually did these killings. So, as I said before, most people, including most of the victims' families, had a pretty good hunch about who did it. Both of the victims were struggling with drug problems, and according to the new investigation, there was a rumor at the time of the murders that Danielle Quinn had stolen drugs from a known drug dealer. Mm Mm-hmm. The drug dealer, of course, had an enforcer. The enforcer was five foot seven, and again, I'm quoting: he wore his hair in French braids. <laughs> that can't be right. That cannot right? be right. <laughs> I imagine the real murderer coming out and just being like, "For the record, I was not wearing French braids. For the record, they were cornrows." Duh. <laughs> Definitely not French braids. How dare you? So the man's name, um, who they suspect, is Neil Edgar Jr., a.k.a. Monster. Monster? Mm-hmm. That's why I don't want to offend him about this hairstyle stuff. Oh, God. If you're wondering where he is right now, he's in prison for murder. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, the look on your face right now. <laughs> Um, so he shot someone in the head and then lit their body on fire. Fuck. Yep, he put it in a truck, lit the whole thing on fire. Nice guy. Um, I'm really concerned about this case because it's local. I know. There's a lot of people involved. I, um, 
I actually got really nervous about this one last night just because I feel like my safe zone is more in like the cases that happened in the 1920s and everyone involved <laughs> is dead. Um, but this one, I'm kind of like, yeah, you had to pick a current one. I need to pick one where people live like five, five miles, miles from here. <laughs> yeah. Where people are walking distance. Jesus Christ. People are like, where do they record this podcast? Nowhere. Time? Yeah. Secret bunker. You'll never find it. <laughs> We're actually in Portland, Oregon. Yes. Two people have come forward and said in affidavits that Neil Edgar Jr. did these murders. And it looks like Danielle was the intended target and Donald, you know, was just unlucky. Yeah. Uh, and I do want to say again, just because uh, immediately after the murders, it's not like the victims' families were trying to be quiet about their loved ones' drug problems. It's not like they yeah. were. Yeah. So Danielle's father told Golubsky, the detective, my son is not hanging out with good people. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, bad, bad people. So did they look into Leroy Brown? Yeah. <laughs> Bad. Bad. <laughs> Baddest man in the whole damn town. It's just so frustrating because, to me, it does not sound like it would have been that hard to find the real killer. No. When, when everyone's being so honest with yes. you. Oh, my gosh. There were other witnesses to the crime. So, what? Alicia... Yeah, what? Did Lamonte McIntyre do something? Did he piss off the wrong person? Or is there... Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. And that is bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that, that is the natural question. Like, yeah. Okay, we'll get, we'll get okay, to it. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so another witness Was to that the... the ESPN noise you just made? ESPN? What is it? Like the sports <laughs> ASMR? Center? No, the sports center. You went like... <laughs> That's the sports center. Noise. How long have you known me and you think I know the ESPN? <laughs> I love it so much. You're like, excuse me, do you, do you mean ASMR? Whatever the fuck you said. ASMR. <laughs> That's how little you know I just assume you've, like, glommed together weird letters. No, why would I know that? That is, like, the last thing I know. (laughs) Under no circumstances. Have I ever made the ESPN noise? I'm pretty sure I've never heard it. Yes, you have. How? Okay, like now I've heard it. <laughs> Listen, I'm not one of those cool girls who's like, let's watch the game. No. <laughs> I'm always like, is this still on? What's it been? Four hours. <laughs> These guys haven't moved much. I don't get it. Oh, God. All that said, I love the show Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders Making the Team. <laughs> Norman is embarrassed for me. We're the only two people in this house. And he walks in on me watching that and he's like, oh my God. It's like he was re- like, God, couldn't you be watching porn? <laughs> it's like he regrets everything. It's like he's 
he's like, why did I marry this person if I'd had any idea that she watched this stupid reality show? Oh, my God. Oh, God. I've seen every episode more than once. Oh, no. It's true. And now you told all 12 of our listeners. (laughs) Listen, my family already knows, so now your family knows. (laughs) No, that's not true. You and I have both had at least three people who are not related to us compliment us on the show. That's correct. Thank you, Danielle Golan. (laughs) (laughs) We we could name all of them and it wouldn't take any time at all. Jesus. (laughs) Okay. So... The other witness to the crime was Stacy Quinn. She was never interviewed by police, because why would you interview a witness to a crime? Jesus. That might take time. So, um, but despite that, uh, Golubsky seems to have known her pretty well. According to her aunt's affidavit, I almost tried to get fancy and say <laughs> aunt, um, according to her aunt's affidavit, Stacy had been having a sexual relationship with Golubsky going back to the 80s oh when she God. was 16 oh or God. 17. Yeah. Ugh. I actually wrote in my notes, yeah, because I was like, I'm going to have to have some reaction and it can't be just a string of curse words. <laughs> so in 1996, when Lamonte was trying to get a new trial, Stacy testified that he didn't do it. Again, too tall, different facial features. She didn't point out the ears, but we're all thinking it. (laughs) But the judge didn't believe her. No. So by the time this amazing article came out in the Kansas Kansas City Star, it was 2016. Lamonte McIntyre was 20, I'm sorry, Lamonte McIntyre was 40 years old. He'd been in prison for 22 years. Cheryl Pilot had put forth an amended motion for exoneration it was the culmination of seven years' worth of investigation. Oh, my gosh. Amazingly, Lamonte still had hope. I'm going to read to you just the end of the article. It says, I know everything is going to work out the way it's meant to work out, he told the star. I'm just biding my time and trying to be patient. He is certain that one day he will be free. I have no doubt about that, he said. And he was right. Nope. I don't know how <laughs> how he was that hopeful. No kidding. After all he'd been through. No kidding. You're crying. I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in October 2017, Wyandotte County held a hearing to determine whether Lamonte should be exonerated. By that point, Cheryl Pilot and Centurion Ministries had worked on his case for eight years. Everyone expected the hearing to last a week. But just two days into the hearing, Wyandotte County District Attorney Mark Dupree announced that they were vacating the case against Lamonte. It was completely unexpected. Oh, my gosh. Um, Everyone burst into cheers. He wept. By that point, he was 41. I've got goosebumps. I do, too. (laughs) He'd been in prison for 23 years. He'd spent more of his life in prison than out of it Uh for a crime he didn't commit. Oh, my gosh. And the pictures of that day... Are incredible. Yeah. There's video of him. Um, the video that I saw starts with his mom. And, you know, she's just... Yeah. I, I just can't imagine. Um, and he was being interviewed and by a bunch of different reporters. Obviously, there were a lot of people around because this case kind of became a big deal. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were yeah. looking at it, which I'm sure is why they dropped the charges two days into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like... 
the the video just shows him seeing his mom and hugging his mom for the first time as a free man and it's just it's it's so sweet and you know she she supported him the whole time Mm -hmm. never doubted him yeah Ugh. ugh And so afterward, he said, I'm here thanking God. I'm thanking everybody who supported me and has been there for me. It feels good. I feel good. I'm happy. Ugh. Poor Lamonte. Now I'm going to bring us down again. Oh, God. But then we're going to do a where are they now. And that's going to be that's going to be happier. All right. (laughs) Can't take much more, Kristen. (laughs) I can't take more of this comedy podcast. This is the worst comedy podcast I've ever heard. We're going to go in and rate ourselves. We're going to be like, these two suck. I came for the comedy. I ended up crying. I ended up crying and saying, I'm never going to Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, so these are the two questions that always got me about this case. And it sounds like they're kind of the ones that tripped you up. Yeah. Which was like. Okay, you know, did did they really just try to go find a black guy named Lamonte? And if so, like, why? Mm-hmm. Why him? And then the bigger question is, of course, about this five five person photo array. Why did it contain mm-hmm. Lamonte, Lamonte's brother, and his first cousin? Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, why? And apparently, also. Photo arrays usually have more photos than that. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, but I, I read that they're supposed to be more like six to ten. Mm-hmm. So you've got a super small group of photos, and yeah. three of them are from the same family? Yeah. Hmm. Mm. It seems odd until you hear this story. Oh, God. So in October 2017, this was just before he was released. Um... Like I said, the investigation turned up a lot of information about Detective Golubsky sexually exploiting black women. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Lamonte's mom, Rosie McIntyre, was one of them. She, she put forth mm-hmm. in an affidavit that years before the murders, he forced her to perform oral sex and said he would arrest her and her boyfriend if she didn't do it. Oh, my gosh. He told her, and of course, you know, she did it. She didn't have a choice. He told her to come to the office, and that was where he forced her. Ugh. She says another officer walked in on them while it was happening and just walked out. So it was like no big deal to them because it was probably happening all the fucking time. Yeah. That's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. Ugh. Golubsky then said he would protect and support her if she continued to do whatever he wanted sexually. Oh, my God. Again, this is all according to her affidavit. Uh, but she really didn't want to. He kept calling her, calling her, calling her. She moved and changed her number. And it sounds like she felt like she was sort of able to get away from him until her son was arrested. Mm -hmm. So in her affidavit, she said, and I'm just going to read to you, I have often wondered if my failure to comply with Golubsky's demands for additional sexual favors caused him to dislike me and my family. I do believe that if I had complied with his request for me to become his woman, that my son would likely not be in prison today. That's fucking horrible. I I struggle with how to use my words here <laughs> for a number of reasons. 
Um, one, because this is all, you know, alleged stuff. I just want to say I believe her. Yeah. Um, this, to me, makes a whole hell of a lot more sense sure than just does. some random thing. It sure does. Yeah. So where are they now? Thank God. Let's let's <laughs> get on some uppers here. Okay. Pass me the... I don't know. What's an upper? I don't do drugs. <laughs> I don't do drugs. <laughs> Pass me the PCP. <laughs> the strongest thing I can give you is like a fresco with a shot of tequila in it. <laughs> That's as wild as we get around here. <laughs> so Stacy Quinn, the woman who witnessed the crime but was never called to the witness stand in the original trial... Um, she was shot to death 13 times in either 2000 or 2001. Okay. I'm sorry. What? This is not funny. But the way you phrased What? What did I say? I think she was probably shot 13 times to death. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she was shot to death 13 times. <laughs> You don't know. <laughs> she was killed. Sprang back up. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is not funny. Really? Is it not funny? <laughs> oh, hmm. So just to be clear, you're laughing at the murder victim, not at me. <laughs> No, so um, if I'm going to say it the correct way, yes, she was shot 13 times to death. <laughs> there was nothing weird or freaky happening here. Okay. Uh, Golubsky investigated her murder. Mm, of course he did. Yep. Speaking of, Roger Golubsky, uh, the detective on the case, worked for the Kansas City Police Department for 35 years before retiring as a chief in, I believe, 2010. After he retired, he joined the police department in Edwardsville. He retired from that force in 2016. I think I read an article that literally said he retired from that job to spend more time with his family. Mm. Great. Mm. Last November, Wyandotte County District Attorney Mark Dupree, who is the first black elected district attorney in Kansas, announced that he is investigating Roger Golubsky for preying on black women. Good. And if and when that goes to trial, we will be covering that. We will be that. covering it. <laughs> Stay tuned for lots yes. of laughs. Tara Moorhead, the prosecuting attorney in Lamonte's trial, is now a federal prosecutor for the state of Kansas. Last December, she made headlines again for threatening a witness and belatedly disclosing evidence that could have helped the defendant. Neat. Yep. Uh, Judge Dexter Burdett, who proceeded over the trial and never disclosed his previous romantic relationship with the prosecuting attorney, is still a judge. Hmm. Also neat. Why don't people, like, take up painting or, like, some other... <laughs> Like, after something like this, why don't you oh, go, you know what, maybe maybe I have other skills. Oh, yikes. Have you seen George W. Bush's paintings? Yes. He's quite good. <laughs> Rosie McIntyre, Lamonte's mom, never doubted his innocence. When a reporter, and keep in mind everything she's gone through, 
When a reporter asked her if she could forgive the people involved in Lamonte's investigation and prosecution, she said, I can never hate. I can never have animosity. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Sandra Newsom, whose son, Danielle Quinn, was one of the victims, she always knew Lamonte didn't do it. She's the person who made us cry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, remember, she vowed she wouldn't visit her. I thought her... that was you. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. <laughs> For making me listen to this fucking horrible case. <laughs> I've noticed you seemed really, um, seemed like things were going well in your life. <laughs> And I was like, this, this can't, this can't be for too long. It's been months and Brandy just seems happy. Oh, God. <laughs> she vowed, she's the one who vowed that she wouldn't visit her son's grave until Lamonte was released. After the announcement, she said about her son's grave, I will be going because now I can close the casket. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Lamonte McIntyre. Is free. Yay. I've got goosebumps again. uh. So in the past few months, he's made headlines for talking about the importance of compensating wrongfully convicted prisoners for the time they spent behind bars. Um, I'm totally with him on that. I am too. Um, The way I actually found out about this case was he and two other guys who I believe kind of were were set free around the same time all worked together and kind of lobbied for Mm -hmm. Kansas to change things because Kansas is one of 18 states in the nation that offers no compensation for wrongfully convicted prisoners. Mm -hmm. And Lamonte has said he obviously wants that to change, even if it's not retroactive. Yeah. Even if it does nothing for him, he says, Mm -hmm. this is an accountability thing. Yeah. You you, you put someone behind bars for the wrong reasons or incorrectly, the state should be held accountable. You shouldn't be let out of prison with nothing to show for the last decades of your life. Yeah. He's currently studying to be a barber. He was a barber in prison, and that's what he wants to do now. That's awesome. Headlines Barber Academy in KCK offered him a scholarship. Yeah. Shout out to them. That's awesome. Yes, that's amazing. So that's where he is now. And there was this great quote from him that I'm going to close with. He says, I want to spend the rest of my life being happy. I don't want to be bitter. That's taking away from me. I don't have any more time to give. Ah, that's amazing. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was a horrible one, Kristen. Thank you for that. I just... The level of corruption in that. Yeah. And coupled with how hard people tried... To get the to right do thing. the right yeah, thing, to yes. do the right thing. That's that. Everything about this infuriates because me. the people who were trying to do the right thing weren't the people with any kind of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mmm. That's it's just deeply upsetting. Yeah. I'm ready for some justice in all this. Yeah. To me. Um, Lamonte McIntyre getting out of prison, that's a small piece of what needs to happen. Yes. I'm ready for some more stuff. Absolutely. And I want him to get so much money. I know. Okay. (laughs) That is what I was like. I was like, fucking Hulk Hogan got like, what, $100 million in his trial for his sex tape? And Lamonte McIntyre, they're like, 
so sorry, goodbye. Yeah. No. No, that has to change. Yeah. Ugh. And I, I don't know that it will. I mean. Yeah. That's horrible. It is. They lock you up for nothing and. Mm-hmm. Mm. Devastating. 23 years of his life. Yeah. Ugh. Mm. But he seems really happy. Yeah, I know. I've seen clips Have you of seen him. Clips? Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think that it would be. It would be so difficult to have that outlook, but it would be so important. Yeah. To for the quality of your rest of your life to not to to choose to be happy every day and to choose not to dwell on yeah. that horrible fucking thing that happened to you. Well, and you know, I'm glad you say that because that's probably what got him through that yeah. prison time. Yeah. And I mean, waiting for this group, you know, seven years of investigation, I just can't imagine. Now, obviously they were awesome. Yeah. Obviously they, they took the time they needed to take, but mm-hmm. I just can't imagine waiting and waiting and waiting. No. Uh, no. Mm-mm. Well, glad we could do this amazing episode. <laughs> we need to end on an upper. Good God. Do you have anything positive um, to say? I have thoroughly vetted our happy hour nacho spot and we're in the clear and we can go it and go there Thank and God. enjoy it and feel no guilt about it. There's nothing, nothing worse than shame nachos. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Shame nachos are the worst. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, boy. <laughs> I already don't feel great about the fact that I'm just eating liquid cheese, but then you, <laughs> then you add on a potential crime. Yes. Yes. Not good. Not good at all. Thank you for doing some investigative You're work welcome. there. That's what uh-huh. I'm here for. That's what I, that's what I do. Not really. Just really, I do hair. So. Brandy quit her job to investigate nachos full time. So far, she's had one case and yes. doesn't look good. <laughs> Turns out there was only really one there case was only she needed. One case. I can go back to work now. <laughs> They missed you that one day yes, at the salon. That's right. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry. You did a good job of coming up with something positive, and I've shit on it. Um, you know what people could do? They could go on. And they could. They're not going to want to give us a good rating after this. They're going to forget be so how horrible and depressing this episode was, and then go to our Facebook page, give us a like. Please, yes. Go to wherever you listen to your podcast. If you listen to them in Apple Podcasts or whatever Android platform offers you. I Uh don't, I'm not really sure what happens on an Android phone. Oh, listen to you. You're so snotty. (laughs) So snotty. Um, Guys, in case you didn't gather, Brandy has an iPhone. (laughs) This whole segment is dedicated to you knowing that Brandy has an iPhone. Subscribe to us there. Leave us a rating, leave uh-huh. us a review, and then we also have a Twitter, which is um, let's go the number two uh-huh. court, and we now have an Instagram, which is um, LGTC podcast. Sorry, I keep talking while you're I mean, talking. What do you don't know about our fucking Instagram? No, I don't know anything. <laughs> I was just gonna brag that uh, three people are following us. Yes, we have three followers. I am two. One of them. Yeah. <laughs> Two are not one of us. Yes. Um, and what would really be amazing is if you could just tell like three people 
about the podcast. And okay. tell it to them in a scary way, yeah. like kind of like those old school chain letters. Yeah. Like, like if you don't listen, you're going to fall into a well yeah. and become Sonara from the ring or whatever her but name was. But you've got to make it personal. You've got to be like, yeah. my friend Sandy, um, she didn't listen to it. And her teeth got yellow. Yeah. And <laughs> so her foot fell off. Okay, this is how I want it to happen. I want you to tell three people. And then I want you to tell those three people that they have to tell three people. So it's going to be like that movie where Kevin Spacey had the burned face, only nobody's going to get stabbed. Too to soon. Death in we the can't end. talk about Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> He's too creepy. <laughs> I thought we were trying to end on a positive note. You bring up Kevin Spacey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hey, let's talk about Harvey Weinstein oh, now. <laughs> anyway, maybe join us next week when we will be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast, Podcast adjourned. adjourned. <laughs> okay, I feel like we picked that up. That yes. was good. <laughs> and now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got the vast majority of my info from the fantastic Kansas City Star article, No Justice by Eric Adler. And by the way, I didn't do it any justice, so please go read that one. As well as other articles from the Kansas City Star and KCTV5. I got my info from the court transcripts and an article in the Oklahoman. I think that's the name of it. <laughs> and some amazing back issues of the Salina Journal. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours. But please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. And in this case, you could go be like super cool microfiche <laughs> on the Salina Journal. <laughs> go to your local library yes. now. Be Ashley Judd in that one movie where she does. What movie was that? Why am I tacking on extra stuff? I'm sorry. I just got to get the last word in. <laughs>